process theology as you know it sort of initially articulated in that final part of process and reality has been of great personal consequence for me in allowing me to without embarrassment talk about the divine and, and use the g word uh in mixed company <laughs> because it's a vision of of god that i think people of varying faiths can connect with whether asian traditions western traditions indigenous traditions there's there's something there for everyone welcome to conversations in process you're in for a treat today especially if you're interested in process philosophy and more specifically in the philosophy of whitehead as i am i'm jay mcdaniel and i had the good fortune to visit with dr matthew siegel Matthew Siegel is assistant professor at the California Institute for Integral Studies in San Francisco, where he teaches courses on German idealism and process philosophy for the Philosophy, Cosmology, and Consciousness program at CIIS. He blogs regularly on an oft-viewed website called Footnotes to Plato, that's footnotestoplato.com, and is the author of a well-known book, Physics of the World's Soul, Whitehead's Adventure in Cosmology published in 2019. He's known to all of us in the process community as a key figure at the intersection of philosophy, spirituality, and science. And that's what we're going to talk about today. And we'll focus in on Whitehead's thought and to learn from him on topics ranging from God to experience to quantum moments to space-time continua to Plotinus to indigenous traditions to Buddhism, you name it. Enjoy. Matt, thanks for joining us. Good to have you. Good to be here with you, Jay. And let's not beat around the bush. Let's jump to the question at hand. How in the world did you discover the philosophy of Whitehead? What was the context? So I discovered Whitehead actually listening to lectures by uh, Terence McKenna, um, when I was an undergraduate, and uh, if you're not familiar with with Terence, uh, he was a uh, <laughs> he once walked into a room to meet Timothy Leary, and Timothy Leary said, "Oh, it's the real Tim Leary." Uh, so he's sort of this um, autodidact psychedelic philosopher who developed uh, his own sort of cosmological vision, um, and I was quite intrigued with his his approach. Uh, you know, as a as a young person just getting into philosophy and discovering the uh, seemingly um, infinite array of different states of consciousness through which one could experience oneself and the universe. And so McKenna uh, would bring up Whitehead's concept of concrescence uh, as an example of a sort of uh, new paradigm understanding of the nature of time and creativity. And I was obviously quite intrigued. And when I inquired further, uh, asking some of my uh, professors at University of Central Florida, where I got my undergrad degree, I asked them about Whitehead and they said, oh yeah, I, he's just really hard to read. And you know, I, I don't even know where to tell you to start. And so I waited until graduate school to really dig into his primary texts and uh, began studying him in my first year at CIIS in the 
master's program, Philosophy, Cosmology, and Consciousness, in which I now teach. And I studied with uh, Eric Weiss, who uh, passed away last year. And uh, Eric introduced me to Whitehead in the context of uh, a course that was comparing Whitehead's cosmology with that of uh, Sri Aurobindo and the integral yoga of Sri Aurobindo. So uh, Whitehead's already quite an elevated thinker in his own right, but when brought into dialogue with Aurobindo, you really get an expansive view of uh, the evolution of consciousness and uh, its place in a living, dynamic, divinely infused cosmos. So um, I've been studying Whitehead directly since 2008. So I've only continued to deepen into it since then. Uh, two questions, Matt. Uh, one is what was the personal or religious or spiritual background for your interest in McKenna and and cosmological thinking in the first place? What's the background for that? And two, can you say a word about uh, McKenna, a little more about McKenna and what he found interesting about Whitehead? Yeah, well, my own upbringing was in uh, the context of a mixed family. My mother was um, sort of non-denominational uh, in her Christianity. We would go to, uh, I would go to Sunday school as a kid, but um, never really developed a um, abiding relationship with a particular church community. My father was Jewish, is Jewish. And um, similarly, while for certain high holidays, we would visit his parents um, uh, and engage in uh, some ritual and um, and, and prayer. I, I never uh, was, um, you know, a bar mitzvah or anything and didn't learn Hebrew, which I regret because it's uh, one of those sacred languages that I think grants insight into the nature of being when one uh, really starts to, to grapple with it. So I came, you know, from uh, this mixed background and as a teenager, I actually really became enthralled with the scientific point of view um, Richard Dawkins, The Selfish Gene, and uh, Stephen Hawking's uh, Brief History of Time, and books like this, um, I picked up as like a 13, 14-year-old and kind of uh, developed into a um, rather uh, hubristic atheist for a couple of years there. And it was only a psychology course in high school with a uh, very influential teacher, his name was Mr. Ennis, Kai Ennis, and uh, he exposed me to Carl Jung and uh, the whole depth psychological point of view, archetypes of the collective unconscious. And in that context, I was able to approach religion again with fresh eyes and to understand the role that it, the transformative role it plays in the context of um, human development and individuation, as Jung would put it. Uh, he, this high school teacher also introduced me to Alan Watts. And uh, through Watts, I was exposed uh, to the 1960s counterculture and the whole psychedelic revolution. And Watts wrote a book called The Joyous Cosmology, which is about his uh, various psychedelic journeys and the implications for philosophy and the study of mysticism. And so I became very interested in that. And uh, also with Watts's influence, started to study Buddhism quite deeply, um, 
mostly Zen, like DT Suzuki. And uh, I was quite enthralled with that and began trying to take up a meditation practice pretty seriously for a few years in my late teens and early 20s. But um, I found myself increasingly isolated from my peers and actually growing somewhat depressed as I was attempting to transcend an ego that hadn't even fully formed yet. <laughs> and so um, it was at that point that I, in the context of graduate school, began to study uh, the Western esoteric tradition, Hermeticism, Kabbalah, Christian mysticism, and contemplative practice and traditions. And that sort of brought me back home and allowed me to realize that these esoteric traditions I had been studying coming out of Asia were not unique in world history. There were also esoteric streams, uh, mystical streams that are rooted in experience rather than dogma, also in the West. And so I kind of came full circle there. And in the mix here was Terence McKenna, who um, he had a very deep understanding of the biblical and, and Greek uh, philosophical uh, idea of the logos. And uh, for him, um, you know, ingesting psilocybin mushrooms would awaken the logos. And he had quite a facility with language himself. And I was inspired by his ability to, in a way, what, what I would say, commune with, with logos and share logos with his his audiences and, and in dialogue and you know his his point of view was you know inspired by his psychedelic experience uh trying to understand the nature of cosmic history and the development of human intelligence and artistry uh as this a time developmental process right and whitehead was important for mckenna in understanding the type of metaphysics which would allow us to understand a universe which complexifies over the course of time and also uh intensifies its experiential capacities along with that complexity and um you know while mckenna was not a systematic metaphysician by any stretch of the imagination he was he was a deeply imaginative thinker. So I was primed by his vision of what one could do with a Whiteheadian process metaphysics way before I actually sat down to begin studying, you know, Whitehead's categorical scheme and engaging in uh, speculative philosophy myself. So, yeah, that's that's a, that's a bit about McKenna and myself. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks so much. And um, I too. Red Watts, and I too have been interested in Zen, and I too am interested in psychedelic experience and, and the Western tradition, so that resonates with my own interests as well. When you actually started reading Whitehead, what did you discover, and what was important to you, and what did you learn that you didn't get from McKenna? Whitehead is um, a very careful scholar and historian of ideas who appreciates uh, the thought even of those he disagrees with. And Adventures of Ideas was the text I started with. Uh, and so to get a sense for his vision of human civilization as this, you know, the, the gradual dawning of coming to consciousness of certain big ideas like freedom uh, and love in the course of history was just such a beautiful vision to me. 
Um, and then, you know, in the second part of Adventures of Ideas, when he gets into uh, cosmology and the history of, of uh, cosmological ideas, it provided me with a really scientifically grounded critique of the dominant mechanistic worldview. And it was so refreshing to me to see someone articulating an organic, enchanted conception of the cosmos, not despite the scientific evidence, but really because of the scientific evidence. And so rather than this sort of tired uh, and I think misleading construal of uh, this sort of split in our culture between those who want to believe in something more and those who are more scientific and, and need evidence. Whitehead shows that actually the evidence supports the vision of an ensouled cosmos, right? To have a, a, a mathematician, a logician, and a, and a physicist of some repute like Whitehead uh, make the case for the type of universe that um, I have I had had experience of and wanted to, uh, you know, was driven to share that experience with others. Just to have Whitehead to support that type of work was um, quite a, it's quite a boon for me. And, you know, Whitehead is harder to dismiss as a crackpot than, say, someone like McKenna. Not that I think McKenna is a crackpot, but he was not an academic, not someone with the sort of widespread respect uh, that a figure like Whitehead has. In Adventures of Ideas, in, the, in those chapters on beauty, and particularly the chapter on peace, uh, did you find uh, insights that were illuminative, uh, either mm -hmm. for you or just philosophically illuminating uh, in general? Remember how he talks about the transcendence of personality mm -hmm. in the chapter of peace. Peace is a falling away of, of a kind of ego-centered consciousness. Did, did that ring true to you at all? Was that side of Whitehead engaging to you? You know, it's interesting that those last few chapters uh, on truth, beauty, uh, peace, and so on, when I first read Adventures of Ideas, I was probably 23. Mm -hmm. And they didn't speak to me as much. Mm -hmm. And I think that's because I had to, uh, I had to age a little bit and experience more more suffering and tragedy and to recognize more in my own experience what Whitehead meant by the highest form of beauty being tragic beauty, the harvest of tragedy right after the dream of youth. I was still dreaming <laughs> when I first <laughs> read these chapters. And so I've I've my appreciation for his vision has grown over the last uh, decade plus, definitely. Gotcha, gotcha. The dreams of youth, the harvest of tragedy. You know, that makes a lot of sense. Did you did you read process and reality? At what stage and, and what did that mean to you? What did that add? I read it shortly after, within a year after Adventures of Ideas, um, also in the, the context of uh, courses with Eric Weiss. And it was a bit baffling initially. I had enough background in the history of modern, early modern philosophy to, you know, engage with and understand the dialogue he was having there with figures like Descartes and, and Locke and Kant and others, Hume, of course. And, you know, my initial takeaway from reading Process and Reality, what, what really stuck with me is the way that he could draw from 
these various other philosophers that he disagreed with, and yet find this through line where, despite their statements to the contrary, embedded within all of their thought were deep insights into the nature of experience that Whitehead wanted to preserve. And so his very generous way of um, engaging with these historical figures was something that I wanted to emulate. Because so often in, in academic philosophy, the the method of engagement, not only with historical figures, but uh, with one's, one's peers is critical and um, dismissive and wanting to make a name for oneself. And Whitehead was so like conciliatory in the way that he would integrate the views of those who came before him. But, you know, Process and Reality is a book that I tell, as I tell my students now, it repays um, decades of study. I mean, I, you know, I've been studying it for more than a decade now. I've probably read it six or seven times and I find something new in it every, every time I pick it up, you know. This is true of most of the deep philosophical texts. Students sometimes have the mistaken impression that you can read one of these books, whether it's process and reality or being in time or uh, whatever, that you could read it once and get it. As if like professors who teach these books only needed to read it once to understand, and that's just not the case. And so I try to disabuse my students of that mistaken assumption. And um, I've just fallen in love with that book over the years. I really have. Well, there's so much that we can talk about in that book. And uh, I'll start with the concept of God. And, you know, there at the end, particularly part five, what did you make of it coming from that hubristic, atheistic perspective that you had way early on? Um, was that important to you or was that kind of tangential to the, the substance of the book? What, what did you make of part five? Uh, well, I mean, it showed me that uh, Whitehead could certainly be lyrical uh, when uh -huh. he put his mind to it, despite the sometimes um, dry technical construction of elaborate categories in other parts of that book. When he got to the final interpretation, envisioning God as the poet of the world, Whitehead himself becomes the poet and mm -hmm. process theology as, you know, it sort of initially articulated in that final part of process and reality has been of great personal consequence for me in allowing me to, without embarrassment, talk about the divine and, and use the G word uh, in mixed company, <laughs> because it's a vision of, of God that I think people of varying faiths can connect with, whether Asian traditions, Western traditions, indigenous traditions, there's there's something there for everyone. And it's a sort of um, theology that doesn't pass the buck, as it were, in terms of, um, you know, wishing for some all-powerful father figure to make it all okay or to vanquish the world of evil. Um, it, it's a participatory vision and grants human beings a role to play in in furthering the the beautification uh, of, of of the earth and the cosmos, and it's an inspiring, motivating vision. And I have been delighted to find that you know when I talk about it to my students, who many of them um, in my program maybe started 
their lives in the context of a religious family and were somewhat traumatized by more patriarchal approaches to usually Christianity. And so they escaped religion and are very, were coming into the study of Whitehead with me, very skeptical of at least uh, the, the, you know, biblical traditions, the theistic biblical traditions. And I have found quite often that um, reading Whitehead and, and uh, coming to understand his vision of the divine is a refreshing reimagination of what the divine could mean and how we can relate to that. And uh, many of my students feel invited to reconsider the idea, the, the, the reality perhaps even of, of God. And so they've, you know, had a, it's impacted them in a similar way that it did me in terms of, you know, opening my, my mind and my heart uh, to this, you know, theistic, even if perhaps um, panentheistic uh, way of relating to God, where God's part of the world, the world is in God. And so it's a refreshing vision that I think can still speak to modern, postmodern, whatever, wherever we are in this late post epoch where everything everyone seems so cynical and critical whitehead offers us a really positive meaningful vision uh, of how to relate to the ultimate ground of being in that part five that you know there's so many things he says of of god um on the one hand um he speaks of god as a fellow sufferer who understands and that's kind of the image of a companion someone different something different from us but that nevertheless understands us in a sympathetic way. And then he also speaks of God as a lure, an influential transformative agency within the world, but not all powerful, requiring the cooperation. Of those two images, the, the companion or the lure, do you find that your students are more interested in one or the other, or where do they lean? I think it depends. Um... I don't want to make any sweeping generalizations, but it seems that the younger ones are interested in the lure and the older ones in the companion. The, the lure is more the primordial nature, the, right. the companion's more the consequent nature. And I think, you know, as, as we suffer loss of loved ones or as we grow older and, and illness or sickness becomes a, a real possibility, um, a threat to our continued existence. Um, I think the, the, the longing for a companion becomes more palpable, um, the sense that the suffering is, is not for nothing, and that there is in some way a, a form of immortality, whether or not it's personal, Whitehead doesn't really weigh in on that question, uh, but some form of immortality where even the dead remain um, God remains with the dead, the dead remain with God and with us in some fashion. That seems quite helpful to uh, some of my students, but the younger ones, particularly the artists, uh, or who have some interest in the arts, um, or who are in any way inclined towards uh, romantic poetry, this idea of God as the lure is um, quite entrancing. So, you know, this is why I think there's something for everyone in Whitehead's vision. And um, this God as the lure, the incitement to, to novelty, um, I think is a vision of the divine that um, modern people are sort of predisposed to, mm -hmm. to, to appreciate. 
um, because there is this sense of uh, progressive building up of intensities of experience that mm -hmm. uh, the sort of you know uh, adventurous attitude of, of modern people is is feels reflected by and, and seen by you know and so I think that's what makes process theology a live option nowadays even though church attendance is down and the traditional religions seem like relics of the past you, you know whitehead shows that with a couple of philosophical tweaks or theological tweaks here and there all of a sudden uh you know the idea of of a divine lure or a divine companion can be quite compelling even for scientifically minded and, and more or less secularized people you know matt there's that one sentence in process and reality tucked somewhere in the middle where he notes that the idea of God, the concept of God, can be embraced from a secular point of view. Mm. And he speaks of the secular function of God. And I've always taken that to mean that one can, even a scientist, could find a principle of order and novelty in the cosmos, a helpful principle to which to appeal in understanding the nature of things, but not have religious feelings attached thereunto. You might understand it differently. Do you have, do you have a, a read on that, that interesting little sentence or idea in, in Whitehead? Yeah, he says something like that. One of the most important uh, tasks of philosophy in the present is the secularization of the concept of God's function in the world. Right. Right? And I think... It's in, in this in that context. He also talks about how his concept of God is it's a metaphysician's God, and it's not uh, rooted in or motivated by religious feeling or religious emotion. That's important too, but that's not what initially uh, motivates Whitehead to include him in his metaphysical scheme. It's God is, or the divine function, you could say, is is solving a metaphysical problem, and Whitehead first introduces God into his cosmology and science in the modern world, actually, in the chapter called God, as a principle of limitation or a principle of concretion. And he talks about how Aristotle brought God into his cosmology to solve uh, this problem, a cosmological problem, the source of motion. And Whitehead says, you know, physics has advanced. We don't have that same problem anymore. We have a Analogous problem, however, which is, uh, as Whitehead frames it, how does something actual come out of pure possibility? How do you get finite, actual things out of infinite possibility? And this is where God plays the role of the principle of limitation. And Whitehead admits that God's in this role kind of the ultimate irrationality because this principle of limitation provides the ground for reasons or rationality and so in, in a scientific context or a sort of cosmological context scientists um physicists don't often want to some of them are open to theological ideas um but for the most part they'll couch it in other language they'll talk about the fine-tuning of the fundamental constants or uh, they'll talk about how given our understanding of the second law of thermodynamics, that things tend to increase in disorder and entropy over time if we wind the cosmic clock back. 
we must have had a very, there must have been a very highly ordered state, a very low entropy state at the beginning of the universe. And from that highly ordered state, given entropy, it would run down and that would account for why there is so much complexity around still. These are scientific ways of talking about what Whitehead is just rendering in metaphysical terms as in terms of God, right? You could say religious terms, but again, he's distinguishing between the role that God can play in a metaphysical scheme versus the role that God plays as a response to religious emotion. And I think it's an important distinction, even if later on in the book, when he brings in the consequent nature of God, he wants to make room for those religious emotions, because after all, religious experience is part of the data that a cosmologist has to take into consideration when, when they come up with an adequate set of categories to interpret uh, the universe. Let's turn to concrescence and Whitehead's understanding of experience. As you well know, in concrescence, the many becoming one in a process of prehension, and it includes subjective aims and an active decision and feeling and subjective form, all of those things we associate with first-person experience. And yet the very idea can also be used by scientists or by you from a kind of third-person perspective, talking about the objects in the universe and how they interact. Do you find it plausible to think that something like subjective aim, subjective form, feeling, exists all the way down into the depths of matter, all the way down? And secondly, do you think that would make any sense to um, a scientist? Take those two questions any way you want to. Yeah. Well, I do think that aim and uh, feeling go all the way down um, into the, the depths of matter, as you put it. Though I think the best way to start uh, a, a explaining how this could be is to remind ourselves that matter is actually one of the most abstract ideas ever imagined by the human mind. <laughs> When you look around you, you don't actually see matter anywhere. You see form, right? Shape or quality, colors, you know, you don't see matter. Matter is, you could say that, that Descartes imagined it in its modern form as the extended substance. Aristotle had a different conception of, of matter as potential. Modern physics in light of uh, quantum and, and, and relativistic uh, physics doesn't have any conception of substantial matter anymore, despite the fact that um, some scientists and popularizers of science continue to speak as if, you know, materialism remained the reigning interpretation of nature given to us by science. So we need to start with this deconstruction of the, the the idea of matter before we can understand Whitehead's proposal for a um, experiential universe or pan-experiential universe, to use David Ray Griffin's term. Because until we remind ourselves of this, typically the pan-experientialist doctrine, right, is met with an incredulous stare. Or the favorite uh, dismissive retort is, you think rocks are conscious or having thoughts? And 
Whitehead actually spends quite a few pages in Process and Reality talking about rocks. And anyone who would you know read those would be disabused of the idea that he's saying that rocks as such um, are conscious. But to say that concrescence is a... Um, a mode of activity that is generic enough to describe nature at all levels, whether we're talking about the nature of human consciousness from moment to moment or the nature of uh, quanta of energy as they vibrate through what we normally think of as an empty space. But in Whitehead's view, there is no such thing as empty space. What seems to be empty is full of energetic activity. And in Whitehead's vision, yeah, there is a a quantum nature reality, which is to say that it comes in these discontinuous leaps or drops of experience. He, he uses William James's phrase. In some ways, Whitehead's cosmology is a generalization of William James's psychology. And, you know, concrescence describes the process whereby the, the past, what has perished, is re-enlivened in the present and allowed to reach into the future. And so it's um, this iterative or repetitive and cumulative or uh, growing process. It's one of the most brilliant uh, conceptions, I think, in in the history of philosophy in that it just does so much work and it bridges so many gaps in other uh, ways of construing the nature of the universe, gaps between matter and life and mind. And so is this convincing to scientists? This sort of view, um, only only those who have the the curiosity to to avoid becoming locked into a narrow disciplinary specialization, who are willing to accept this philosophical need for coherence, who who want to see the universe as a whole rather than the universe as it is. Uh, reflected through the the narrow aperture of whatever their specialization is. In the course of the last century, knowledge has proliferated just so much. Every day, a new scientific discipline emerges to study some of the minutiae that that can be brought forth in the context of a laboratory environment. Um, and so Whitehead was like among maybe the last generation of polymaths who could get a grasp of the whole of knowledge to really try to put it together into a coherent picture. There aren't many who are brave enough to do that. You, you risk your professional reputation and your capacity to advance academically if you do this sort of thing. And so there are sociological reasons that some scientists might be skeptical due to the nature of uh, the professionalized university disciplines. But I think I mean, this is complicated, but you know, there's there's a great philosopher Charles Taylor who who writes about the the modern age and the the, the scientific revolution as not just a sort of epistemological transformation where we gain this new way of knowing about nature and about ourselves and human nature, but that there was a moral transformation and that coming to view nature as a kind of deterministic law-abiding machine was crucial in the liberation of the human being in a political and moral sense. The, the growth of this, um, the notion of the free individual with rights was, was always, at least historically, made possible 
by a contrast with nature, which was not free, but determined, right? And by developing science and technology, human society could advance in this project of liberating individuals by gaining ever more technological control over nature. And so I share this just to say that the mechanistic picture of the universe, though we need to critique and reimagine that for social and ecological reasons today, I think historically it served a function in our moral development, allowing us to develop what Charles Taylor calls the buffered self, right? An enchanted universe might sound beautiful and, you know, there are angelic hierarchies and elemental beings and all of this, but enchantment also means demons and incubi and succubi and, and forms of possession that the modern buffered self doesn't have to worry itself about anymore, right? Because we've developed this autonomous, rational agency. And so I think, yeah, there's a relationship between the development of that agency and the mechanization of nature, but we've gone through that. And it's time to imagine a new kind of perhaps more relational identity among individuals, reestablish a sense of community that's not the feudal pre-modern forms of community that were maybe a little too suffocating. I think Whitehead's vision of a, of a, a universe driven by this process of concrescence gives us a lot to work with as we make this effort, which is not just scientific, it's also moral. I want to go back to matter just for a second. If I could repost my question, I'd say, do you think it makes sense to speak of feeling, decision, subjective aim, subjective form, as being at every level of actuality? And I need not use the word matter there, but in a way, I still want to, and I'd like to say why. At this moment, I'm sitting at a desk, and I can touch the desk, and that's a quality I realize, touch. But the desk actually resists me in some way. If I push, I cannot push it at will. The desk has a kind of, and I'm going to use Whitehead's word, a kind of givenness to it. And I experience what he called experience in the mode of causal efficacy. It affects me, and I can't will it away. And I wonder, do you think that notion of givenness, the givenness of the past in Whitehead's terms, and experience in the mode of causal efficacy, being affected by something other than you that you simply can't will away. It's given for your experience. Does that play a role in your own conceptuality, the, the notion mm -hmm. of the givenness of the past? Related to that is his idea of the withness of the body. Any thoughts on any of those? Anything I just said? Yeah, so when I teach Whitehead, I often construe his cosmology as an alternative both to materialism and to idealism. Mm -hmm. He's a realist. He calls his philosophy organic realism, uh, precisely for the reasons you're pointing to, Jay, that there is a given world of stubborn facts, right? And we have to inherit those facts in order to, to, to act and decide. Before we can introduce novelty, we need to deal with what's given. There's a, a story of Whitehead lecturing at Harvard. He was co-teaching uh, with an idealist, uh, Ernest Hawking, and Whitehead was getting fed up with the idealistic implications of Hawking's view and, and was like, 
you know, being tackled in rugby, like that's the real, you know, anyone who hasn't been in the middle of the scrum, having their shins kicked bloody, just might not understand what it means to exist in a real world, you know, with, with others, uh, and, you know, in a more (laughs) metaphysically abstract way, he would say that the present moment is characterized by the influx of the other, right? So there's something more than just my mind. And even, you know, in, in his gentle polemics with some of the British idealists, he would caution against the idea that the universe is really one mind and all of the particulars appearing within it are like maya or illusion. He thinks that doesn't do justice to the value of individuals, right? Individual facts, individual creatures. God is in each of the creatures and God manifests in the world through the particular perspectives, right? That are born out of the process of concrescence rather than just being this quiescent, subtending absolute that's unaffected really by anything going on within the universe. God is affected. And so matter in the sense of the stubborn facts, the givenness of the the past, I think uh, is essential to Whitehead's cosmology because it's what differentiates it from idealism. Now, I think idealists, idealism is becoming more popular um, nowadays, as is panpsychism or panexperientialism, I wish was talked about more than the general forms of panpsychism that are getting more airtime these days. But materialism is under fire from many directions now. And I think the idealists have some pretty good critiques of standard materialism or physicalism. But um, I've often tried to argue that Whitehead provides a more balanced view here that is not prone to the excesses of the idealist point of view, right? And it's precisely on this point of the the, the givenness uh, and the, the stubborn facts of the, of the world that um, our will cannot simply wish away. So Matt, maybe another idea I'd like to hear your thought on, and it would be the relationship of, of Whitehead to what I would call Neoplatonism, a certain kind of Neoplatonism. And I'm talking about that way of looking at the world that says, ultimately there's one reality and let's call it God. And everything is a manifestation of it, like uh, photons being emitted from a single sun or ocean waves emerging from a single ocean. Now I know that Whitehead in a way, rejects that. I think he does. I'll, I'll you respond to that. But nonetheless, it seems to me that in his notion of creativity, there's the hint of, of something like that. There's a formless something, not a thing, of which absolutely everything is an expression, even God. So that's, that's my way of affirming something like a Neoplatonic insight uh, in Whitehead, but how about you? Do, do you sense any way of recognizing the truth of those more monistic perspectives? Yeah, I mean, in some ways, Whitehead is a, um, there's got to be seven neos here, neo, 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 ne
in the sense that he's in, you know, Plato has been reinterpreted uh, many, many times throughout the last uh, couple millennia. And philosophy is footnotes to Plato, right? The European tradition, at least, but I think also uh, the Arabic and Islamic traditions as well. And so I, I think there are ways to construe, say, the like Plotinus's emanationist scheme in a way that is compatible with Whitehead's philosophy, but we have to Here's, here's how I would put it. Rather than there being a emanation from the one to the noose, to the world soul, to nature, to matter, that is sort of a downward trajectory with less and less being at each step, in Whitehead, we have to transform this, this downward ladder. And of course, Plotinus, there's the return to the one also, but that's, that's, that's an important hint here for connecting Whitehead to Plotinus. But I think rather than this... Um, hierarchy, where matters at the bottom, we have to create like a, a lemniscate, if you will, right? the infinity symbol, where, you know, Whitehead says creativity is is both many and one. And so if if matter is, in Plotinus's sense, just like pure dispersal in the many, that is just as much a reflection of creativity as is the unit, right. the unity at the beginning, you know? And so I think when you go to either extreme, you end up in the same place. And one could argue that this is a fair interpretation already of what Plotinus and the Neoplatonic tradition is saying. You know, there's more kind of body positivity in, in Neoplatonists like Iamblichus and uh, uh, a sense in which the body is is a is a is a vessel for for transformation uh, of of the soul in a way that maybe wouldn't otherwise be possible. And so I think. This is a rich area for for sort of cross uh, philosophical comparison, uh, inter philosophical comparison, and I didn't mean to you know too sharply um, oppose Whitehead to idealism. It's more the there are certain forms of monistic idealism or non dual idealism um, that I often have brought up in dialogues or even debates with folks who will strangely enough, oppose non-dualism to the view that I'm putting forward, which isn't very non-dualist. Um, there's always this hidden contradiction in trying to argue for the non-dualist point of view because you're saying, nope, what you're saying is not part of my non-dual ultimate. Or I think, you know, Whitehead certainly has room for this unified vision of the whole, but he makes a point several times in process and reality of saying, you know, this is more of a pluralistic vision than say Spinoza's one infinite substance or Plotinus's one beyond being. So he wants he's he's more of a democratic thinker in that sense. He wants to do justice to the democracy of fellow creatures and not rush to reduce them to the infinite absolute. You know, John Cobb wrote an essay years ago in dialogue with Buddhism, uh, in particular kind of the Kyoto school uh, of Buddhism, in which he proposed that Whitehead's distinction between creativity and God could be very helpful. And that creativity is analogous to what the Kyoto thinkers were calling emptiness. And God is the lure and the great companion. And mm -hmm. both, both are, are real. Uh, so in seeking terminology, he said, think of creativity, that is emptiness, as the ultimate reality 
and think of God as the ultimate actuality. Mm-hmm. And so he ended up speaking of two ultimates. And he knew that that flies in the face of so many of us who said, no, please, one ultimate, one ultimate. It has to be one thing that's ultimate. But, but of course, he stuck to it. Any, any thoughts on that, on distinguishing between an ultimate reality and an ultimate actuality? Yeah, I think John's John Cobb's distinction there is um, defensible, but it's an innovation upon Whitehead's view, and it could be a helpful innovation. I mean, I think Whitehead's clear that, in his view, creativity is the ultimate God is a creature of creativity. But in an effort to be more, not just inclusive, in the sense that you're assimilating others to one's own view by making room for them, but but really pluralistic in our inter-religious dialogue, I think, you know, John's innovation there is is helpful for the sake of starting a new kind of conversation with Buddhists uh, or, you know, other other traditions who don't have a need for, for any kind of God or, or, or theistic being. Although, you know, in Buddhism, I think this, the idea of the lure, the companion, you can talk about Buddha nature, Tathagata, I think is, a, is the term. Tathagata. And also in pure land of Buddhism, there's plenty of images mm-hmm. of divine beings that are compassionate and luring. Uh, right. The great Kuan Yin. Kuan Yin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Kuan Yin. Let's, let's turn to, to one more area now that we're in the multiplicity of religions. Um, let's go to shamanism. And one characteristic of so many shamanic traditions, but, but also of Neoplatonism for that matter, is a recognition of plain, multiple planes of existence inhabited by multiple kinds of actualities, which are encounterable. But some of those actualities are not three-dimensional in the sense of being available to the physical eye. Another kind of eye, yes, but not the physical eye. Do you think that Whitehead, Whitehead's philosophy is conducive to a, an expanded pluralism that could include multiple kinds of actuality, not simply the three-dimensional? Yeah, I certainly think so. In process and reality, I, I think I can't remember the exact um, way that he, he phrases it, but he speculates about actual occasions and, and, and societies or historical roots of occasions that didn't have uh, the, the same balance of physical and mental poles and that he, he leaves open the possibility of occasions which could be more in the mental pole than in the physical pole uh, as, as we're used to understanding what, what physics means, what the physical pole of an actual occasion is. <clears throat> and, you know, I've, I've thought a lot about this both in the context of uh, so-called disincarnate entities, mm-hmm. but also in trying to reconcile Whitehead's cosmology with the psychology or meta-psychology of Carl Jung and what are archetypes in, in a Whiteheadian cosmos. They're not eternal objects, that's clear, because as Jung understands archetypes, they have agency. Uh, they, they, they're beings. They're, they're the gods and goddesses that, that make up, you know, the human psyche. And, um, so they're somewhere, they're kind of these hybrid entities somewhere between eternal objects and actual occasions, at least as we're used to those in the physical world. You know, so I, I've, I've 
I haven't developed this in a in a paper, but in dialogue with some others who are interested in this, of trying to think of archetypes in some way along the lines of Whitehead's um, propositional feelings, and that they're they're in some ways inhabiting the 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 divine mind and interacting with again the physical world as we're used to experiencing it through the initial and consequent natures of God. It's a, it's a bit fuzzy, but it's fascinating to me to think through this. I, I'm pretty convinced, though, that there's room in Whitehead for this. Um, I, I, I think Whitehead says something like, further inquiry in these areas is an empirical matter. You know, it's based on what we can experience, but his categorical scheme leaves room for it to be integrated into, into the cosmology, for sure, in my opinion. I, I love the way some people would, matters that some people would consider metaphysical, Whitehead says, it's an empirical question. Yeah. What does the evidence suggest? You, mm -hmm. you know, his notion of the extensive continuum, which sounds a lot like a multidimensional version of a space-time continuum, although he says it's not. He says it's not. But I wonder if, if the extensive continuum is an opening to affirm places in a way, sites, where non-physical actualities might have their own regions. That's his language, regions. Mm -hmm. So I, I wonder if that would help in some way. And also his notion of hybrid prehensions, links from one mental pole to, an, to another actuality. Any thoughts on that? Have you, have you been able to make sense of this idea of extensive continuum? Is that, <laughs> how are you doing uh, on that one? <laughs> Yes. Well, you know, part four of process and reality is um, one of the most difficult philosophical inquiries that I've ever had to make sense of or, or try to make sense of. Um, I, I see Whitehead there trying to elaborate a contemporary reconstruction of, of Plato's receptacle, which is, as Plato says, a dark and difficult idea very obscure because it's almost like one way of characterizing the receptacle is as it's it's the form of formlessness <laughs> right it's the matrix within which forms uh, can come to manifestation i think whitehead wants to distinguish metrical space-time from the extensive continuum which is a more general idea than just the space-time of our cosmic epoch and so I think we can say that it is this um, preg pregnant, multi-dimensional womb within which many forms of actuality could come to be and communicate with us, perhaps via hybrid prehension, not through any measurable physical means. But, you know, Whitehead doesn't, he, he's doing plenty of speculation on so many other matters, and he doesn't speculate too much about what my teacher uh, Eric Weiss used to call transphysical entities. But actually Eric Weiss, his dissertation was was using Whitehead and Arbindo and others to begin to elaborate upon the metaphysical principles that might be involved in a cosmos, including transphysical beings. Well, so many indigenous traditions, but actually many kinds of traditions, speak of departed ancestors as living. You know, we live and move and have our being in, in a home of um, ancestral spirits, as well as the physical world. And I wonder if, if your notion of a womb 
a multidimensional womb where other kinds of actualities can reside might at least be a lens through which to think about that. And, and lots of communication. Well, listen, this has been a great conversation for me. Um, thank you so much. Yeah, well, I, I, I try to do my teaching in a dialogical way and I, I really appreciate your, your questions, Jay. Um, this has been uh, enriching and, and I hope uh, the, our, our listeners have appreciated it. And thanks for the opportunity. Was there a question that you wished I'd asked that I didn't ask? Um, I mean, there's so much uh, to talk about that Whitehead and, and process thought generally offers so many mm, helpful mediating conciliatory ways forward out of the contemporary, increasingly polarized cultural spaces that we inhabit, whether it's the science and religion debate or uh, the debates among the religions, um, you know, and so maybe next time we could talk more about how Whitehead's cosmology and, and process theology would help us resolve the culture war between those who would profess a more reductionistic, scientistic view of, of the universe and of evolution versus, say, creationists or intelligent design theorists who are holding on to this view of an interventionist, all-powerful deity um, that's large and in charge and see if, in what ways Whitehead can help mediate this debate between the warring camps. I think that would be fun and important. <laughs> well, I love the fact that you said next time. So perhaps this is part one and perhaps there can be part two because I would love to talk about those matters. Yeah, and it deserves an hour of its own at least. <laughs> Well, for now, thank you so much. See you next time. All right. I look forward to it, Jay. Okay. Thank you. Conversations in Process is a podcast from Open Horizons and the Cobb Institute, hosted by Jay McDaniel. If you enjoy these conversations and would like to support the show, consider becoming a friend of the Cobb Institute or making a donation at cobb.institute. Or leave a review through Apple Podcasts to help others find out about the show. Thank you for listening.